What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast, where we talk about all things related to athletic performance, rehabilitation, and wellness. My name is Michael Falk, and I will be hosting today's episode. And I am very excited to be joined today by Dr. Mike Clark, who is a certified mental performance consultant and a sports psychologist at the University of Arizona. I've been wanting to do a podcast with a sports psychologist for, honestly, since we've started this podcast, so I'm very excited to get Dr. Clark to come on today. Dr. Clark earned a PhD in counseling psychology from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and a master's in sports psychology from the University of Missouri. Prior to that, he graduated with a bachelor's degree from Mississippi State, where he also ran cross-country and track and field competitively for the Bulldogs. Uh, In addition to his role as a sports psychologist for the University of Arizona, he also works with clients remotely um, online. Today, Dr. Clark and I talk about the difference between clinical sports psychology and sports performance consulting and what the difference there is and how athletes can identify what their need is. We also dive deep into several topics around sports performance and the effect that your brain can have on that, ideas around confidence, how to manage pressure, and then we have a long conversation around the effect of kind of mental wellness, mental performance, and athletes going through a rehabilitation process. So whether you're an injured athlete, an athlete that wants to enhance your performance, somebody that just wants to uh, be more mindful about their fitness and, and uh, performance in the gym, you're going to learn a lot from this episode. I really enjoyed the conversation, um, and it's probably one of the favorite podcasts that I've done recently. So I hope you guys learn a lot. Welcome to another episode of the Milwaukee Sports Performance Podcast. My name is Michael Falk, and I am joined today by Dr. Mike Clark, who is a certified mental performance consultant. He is from the Milwaukee area, but currently working at uh, in Arizona with a college down there. Um, and he's gracious enough to take some time to dive into the world of sports mental consulting, sports mental skills coach, sports psychology, or sports psychology, and um, we're going to dive into what some of that even means today. So, Mike, thank you very much for taking the time to come on tonight. Oh, absolutely. Thanks a lot, Michael. Yeah. So I'd love to just start with a uh, background for people that come on. Um, could you just tell everyone a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field and where you are now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think like many in sports psych, um, I played a lot of sports growing up. Um, I was the kid that was always doing, you know, rec league basketball and baseball and like soccer for quite a long time. And, um, eventually found running, enjoyed running in high school, um, kind of found that I was okay at it or maybe a little bit better than okay. And I think that's what made me stick with it. Um, ended up uh, earning a scholarship to Mississippi state university where I ran for four years and, um, you know, had every intention to be like an athlete student during that time and was majoring in psychology because um, why not? (laughs) And also because I I didn't like many other things. Uh, I knew that I I don't want to be so flippant about it. I ruled out a lot and I liked the idea of studying people and the mind and things like that. But, you know, in undergrad, it's more terms and kind of big concept based. And so really just focused on my time as a student athlete. Um, but during the end of my college career, kind of, uh, you know, learned that sports psychology was even a thing uh, by my track and field director, Al Schmidt. 
um, which, he put me in contact with someone named Rick McGuire over at University of Missouri and um, really started to learn more about the field and found that like that's actually something I'm really passionate about. Um, we didn't have a sports psychologist at the time. Uh, when I was a student athlete, I would have loved to pick their brains or even just like sit in on a session or have a session probably could have benefited from one or, or 20 and, uh, <laughs> you know, just fell in love with it. Got a, you know, got a master's in sports psychology, which I mean, understand the performance side of things, uh, but I understood that I wanted to be able to help kind of the whole person um, kind of from a clinical and well-being standpoint. So um, got a doctorate in counseling psychology from UW-Milwaukee. Um, so I was hanging out in Milwaukee and Waukesha, uh, uh, you know, was born in Waukesha and uh, from, you know, from the area. So it's good to be back home. But, you know, uh, one thing led to the next. And here I am at the University of Arizona as a sports psych. So, um, yeah, no, that's the like, I guess, two minute, whatever it's yes. going to be. feel. But that's I guess that's me. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, so there's things that you're touching on there and you and I exchanged some emails before we came on. And I think it'd be awesome just to dive into it right away. Just the, cause this, the field is, I don't want to say it's new cause it's been around for a while, but more and more common. Um, I think even 10 years ago, it was the exception rather than rule the rule that a college athletic department would have an on staff sports psych. Um, so could you kind of walk people through like the difference between like a licensed sports psychologist versus um, there's different terms that I've heard just talking to different people, mental skills coach, mental skills consultant, um, sports mental skills. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of some of the other language around it, but mm-hmm. kind of what's the difference in in between those two things and how they're differentiated? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it is great that the field is starting to expand and, you know, student athletes, professional athletes, Olympic athletes, youth athletes, people not in sport, um, but other performers are starting to really want to train the mind intentionally. So it's really cool. Uh, And also it's nice that the stigma around the mental health piece is kind of coming down a little bit. Uh, But that does lead to this very conundrum, like who's who, who do I, like, who do I see? How do I see them? How do I know if, you know, you know, so it's like all of these great questions. So, I mean, if we really want to break it down, into like a couple big boxes. There could be a, a clinical role or there could be a non-clinical role that's only in the performance uh, domain. And what that would mean is a term like sports psychologist would is, is a legally protected term. And it um, it's the only legally protected term on the clinical side. Um, well, I shouldn't say that outside of like mental health therapists and things like that, but now see where we're already getting in the weeds. So <laughs> yes. on, the, on the clinical side, you've got the sports psychologist, which means they're a licensed, they're a licensed psychologist, either counseling or clinical, um, and they have additional training in sport and performance. And so, you know, typical presenting concerns would be your, you know, anxiety, depression, trauma, eating disorders, um, substance abuse. Uh, those would all be clinical concerns. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got uh, mental performance consultants, uh, mental strength coaches, mental skills coaches, all of these terms that you've used. Um, and these are people who have specialty in sport and performance enhancement. So you're, this is probably what a lot of people think about when they hear the term sports psychologist. So confidence, composure, visualization, you know, kind of those are some of the common ones, obviously not exclusive. Um, and then you've got people who do both. So there's that middle part of the Venn diagram. I'm one of those people. So 
I do the clinical work, um, but then there's also, um, you know, as the certified mental performance consultant, that's our accreditation with on the performance side. And so um, I love it because I could do both. And I feel like if someone comes in my door, I can ethically and legally help them if I have the competence or if it's a good fit. Um, but it certainly is messy. I mean, I don't, that was probably a three minute explanation on, on the field. Right. And so to boil it down, do you need performance? Do you need clinical or do you need both? I think that's where you start. Yeah, no, it's uh, interesting because it, it's not that different from our field where mm-hmm. what's the difference between a strength coach an athletic trainer, a physical therapist, a chiropractor, there, there are legal protections and there's Mm-hmm. arguments in Congress over who can do what or within state bodies of um, who can call themselves what, but in practicality, it's like, I'm a, yeah, I, that's sort of why I went back to physical therapy school, probably similar to why you pursued your clinical uh, degree as well in terms of, I wanted to be able to do whatever that person needed. I didn't want to have my hands tied by some governing body said, you can't do this. So it's like, I have a strength conditioning certification athletic mm-hmm. training and physical therapy. That way I can do whatever I want to, to help the person in front of me. Um, and it's more legal, uh, legal battles than, than anything else. It, exactly. Yeah. And the, the legal protections are one thing and the competence are another, you know, it's like, do I understand the, the human psyche and the mind deep enough to know that I'm not going to do harm? Mm-hmm. Like that's at the baseline, but then also can I actually help someone? So, um, I'm right. I'm right with you. And I mean, yeah usually more schooling, which is the unfortunate part. Right. But um, yes. yeah. yeah, that's, uh, that's always, always seems to be the, be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of started diving into some of what, uh, what your field can do, but could you talk about maybe let's especially go into the, the mental skills and or mental performance consulting. Um, why is it beneficial for athletes? Why have we seen such a kind of explosion of, of these professionals and athletes turning to these professionals over the last several years? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think there's just an intentionality about trying to find every way to maximize performance. Um, so in, in some respects, it's an arms race. And so organizations want to say that they have all, you know, every resource available, which might include, you know, some mental performance coaches or consultants, um, so, you know, I don't want to be naive to the fact that I think that's pushing it. I think COVID really changed the way that people thought about sport and training, um, you know, particularly with some teams that I worked with starting before COVID really took off. And then into COVID, there was this need to say, hey, how can we train? Like, how can we train during this time when we all have to be away and unique, unique concerns came up and it's like, they're not confident to work together. They're not communicating well. There's just a disconnect between training and competition because that bridge of, you know, scrimmage or whatever might, might have been, um, you know, taken away or I don't want to say taken away, but had to, had to be changed. I think like COVID really was an accelerant, but the field was gaining a lot of traction even as five, six, seven years ago. And so I think really it goes back to, you know, understanding that, training the mind is really not all that different than training the body. Um, these are skills. And so if something is a skill, that means that if we intentionally train it, there's a chance it could get better. Um, and so I think once that was uncovered and then people started to grapple with it, um, the field started to gain some more traction. That would be my guess. That's how I've seen it. 
Um, but I think people could also bring up really other good individual examples of other people they saw and kind of spirals from there. Yeah, no, hundred percent. I mean, I think you hit on it. Like the mind's so powerful. Um, there was a research study in a, in a physical therapy journal the other couple of months ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe longer than that, maybe a couple of years at this point, it all runs together, but, uh, essentially it looked at somebody that actually did a strengthening exercise on their forearm or bicep or something like that. And then somebody else that just imagined that they were mm. doing that exercise and like visualized it. And after this eight weeks, the, the person that actually, uh, did the exercise did get relatively stronger, but the person that just visualized and imagined themselves doing that exercise were stronger than the person that did nothing. Um, and just, I think through a combination of, of, research in different fields where we just are continually intuitively, we know how powerful your brain is, but we're continuing to see more and more evidence, um, being gained on why it's so, why your mind's so important. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're teeing up, uh, you know, a favorite, a favorite lesson of mine and, and really it speaks to that neuroplasticity, right? The brain's always growing and those neural pathways can just be strengthened through visualization. And the, the thing that I like to to challenge people to think about is if you were to, you know, uh, like just spend a little bit of time seeing through your own eyes intentionally and very clearly what you're trying to do, you know, what are you likely to, to experience afterwards? And so, well, I don't know. I'm going to go try it. So, okay. Go do it. They come back. Like, well, I kind of felt like I'd been there before. Like, is that, is that real? Is that right? And it's like, well, it's not my job to say if it's right, but yeah, that's pretty common. Right. And really that's why or why that is is because at the core of it our brain doesn't know the difference between things that are real and things are that are imagined just like you're saying and so can we get extra mental reps without taxing the body like the answer is very clearly yes and so if we can maximize that like why wouldn't we right no uh 100% i think it's it's interesting i mean we again we like to work with other people that know way more about this stuff than we do. But in the return to play process, working with people that have injuries, even, even early on after ACL surgery, it's like, we can't do anything else. Like one of your exercises, just like continuing to like visualize, like go to practice, hang out with your teammates, like see yourself out there while yeah, you're, you're on the sideline, you're in your brace, you're on crutches, but like, don't just become this passive little shell sitting over there engaged, you know, think through what's going on in the field, like see yourself doing, doing that. Or what would you have done in that situation just to keep your mind going and in that, in that kind of competitive environment and and just engaging. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I see that all the time. And when I ask people who are in that return to play process, like why, why aren't you going to practice? What's that about? you know, a lot of times I think it comes down to this perceived sense of shame or I let my team down or I just can't face it. or I don't want to be seen on, on my scooter with my leg propped up and I'm, you know, moving around and, and like, that's real, you know, and, and that's more the clinical side that we kind of unpack with the return to play. But yeah, something I hard sell with athletes all the time. It's like, okay, one, let's unpack that and get through that. But why, why is that important? Well, you could actually be gaining if you're at, if you're at practice and you know, you're watching the route be thrown and you're envisioning yourself going up and making that one-handed catch, bringing it in, getting one or two feet in and making it happen, you know, and that can be beneficial from a performance standpoint, but I think also from just a well-being standpoint, being around your teammates and 
people who inherently would support you. I mean, so, so, so powerful. So yeah, no, I, I'd love to hear that that's part of the rehab process for people you work with. No, that's, that's great. It's good to, good to have some more ideas around it. Mm-hmm. Um, shifting gears just a little bit into some of the kind of a more clinical thing. I, I think we keep hearing more and more about mental health in the media. It's becoming, it's not something that's off in a dark corner anymore. It's being talked about more and more. And my sense has been in this past two years, um, we're hearing it more and more about it with athletes, with examples of like Simone Biles very publicly going through something with the Olympics. Um, recently, there's been a football player from Ohio State that retired and has been very kind of open and, and honest about why um, with some of the mental health struggles and what he's gone through and the steps that he's taken to take care of himself. And I think that's been amazing. Um but I'd just be curious on a, in a broader perspective, um, just as a, you know, psychologist and sports psychologist, are, what are you seeing that might be contributing to this, like having more athletes deal with some of these mental, have these mental health issues? Is it just as simple as people are talking about it? And so there's more awareness, they're more willing to raise their hand and say like, I need help. Whereas 10, 15 years ago, everyone just kind of dealt with it in private or are there athletes that are going through like with the pressure of social media and just the modern day things that were creating a bigger mental health issue than, than used to be there with, with athletes? I mean, can I answer just be yes to all of that and we move on? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, um, you know, but, but truly I think it's a yes and kind of answer, right? Because like, are there more mental health concerns now than in the past? is one question I think a lot of people ask and something you're contending, um, something you're not asking, but is common in that dialogue is like, are athletes softer or weaker or something today, which is feeding the, the wrong wolf for sure. Like, I don't like to go down that pathway because yeah. my answer is no to that, but for, yeah. for the record, but, but that's often included in this dialogue. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there's also this question of, okay, well, are you just, treating concerns that aren't actually mental health problems. That's a common question in this narrative. And, you know, I don't know that that's, I don't know that the answer is yes to that. And so, you know, where I land, at least right now with things, it's, is that the, the pandemic truly did throw gasoline on the fire of, of, of concerns. You know, I like to think about even just stress and anxiety, which is not everything, but probably 60% of cases have at least some clinical level of anxiety included um, in that we all have baseline stress. And then we have like our daily stress and our daily stress goes up and down, up and down, up and down. And that baseline stress takes a little bit longer to go up and a little bit longer to slow down or to go down. And what we're noticing is that our outlets and being able to just manage day to day is, is is not necessarily there. And so baseline stress is going up and up and up and up and up. And then you add social media in college, you add NIL, just, I mean, name image likeness, totally flipping the game upside down this year. I can't tell you how many college student athletes I have in my office that are saying, you know, like I was approached by this person. I want to approach this person. Like I only have, you know, 12,000 followers on Instagram only. Right. And it's like, hey, like I'm getting I mean, death threats are are nothing new in college athletes, and I'm not making that sound glamorous, but that's not that's not exactly new. But I think how quickly people can get to athletes 
in college or pros or even high school is so quick now that it just, it, it causes some concern, you know? And so I think concerns are, are exacerbated. Um, but I also think that accessibility has gone up. Um, a big part of my role is not to sit in my office and do therapy all day, uh, but I do a lot of that in the morning. Um, but most afternoons I'm out at practice and I'm standing around talking to athletic trainers, team docs, PTs, ATs, who have coaches, other athletes who are on the side, um, just being around, you know, and I think that destigmatizes our work and our role as psychologists in a big way. So it's kind of like the chicken and the egg, like there are more concerns, but also like, I guess nothing really bad happens if I just talk to someone about it. It's like, it's pretty profound insight, which I'm poking fun of a little bit, but I think it's taken all of us a a long time to get there. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, and um, I'm not that old in the field. Um, I I guess I'm getting gradually more experienced, but um, I mean, just it's never something that at least in when I was in a, in a team setting locker room environment, um, someone talking to a, whether it was just a clinical psychologist about something else or a sports psychologist about a performance related issue or whatever the case may be, no one would willingly like raise their hand and say that they were going to do that. It was just something like they might've been doing it and we Mm might've facilitated that relationship, but it was not something that was like, they would go talk to their buddies about. And um, just in some of the college players that we work with, it's something that when they come back to see us, they're often regularly engaging with the professional at their school and, and they're, um, no proud of it's the right word, but like they're, they're willing to share, they're sharing it with other kids about like how much it's helped them or whatever the case may be. Like, and I think it's just facilitated this great discussion and where it's like people are sharing positive experiences, which then gets more and more people to want to do them. Um, we're having a lot of parents that are, um, asking us like at the beginning of an ACL rehab or a Tommy John rehab or whatever, like, um, I'm worried about my child's like mental well-being as they go through this process. Is there something that are there signs I need to look for? Are there something that we could reach out to or whatever the case may be? And um that's something that five years ago, that was never a question. And just in the last couple of years, it's five, six times that's coming up as we started these rehabs, just before we've even like first visit, like before we've really even gotten into it, um, people thinking about that, which I think is great. It's, you know, incredibly common when you're in-house for an athletic trainer uh, or a team doc to have it be part of their own policy that's saying, hey, pre-op or post-op, usually pre-op, you're going to meet with someone from sports psych, you know, and there usually is, isn't that much kicking and screaming. Um, there is a little bit of like, I don't know how they're going to help me. And I think there's a, a, a healthy amount of leveling that I do with every student athlete. I mean, I've gone through return to play at, with countless student athletes, but each is a little different. And I, and I tell them that, like, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't tell you that in nine months, everything's going to be perfect and great. Um, you know, and I may not even be your cup of tea. Like there may be someone who identifies differently than me or has a different theoretical orientation than me that you align with, like, that's okay. But in, in either case, most student athletes, at least at the collegiate level, like are not from the town that the college is in, um, at least not in a, 
especially now at the power five level. So it's like, where's your support? Oh, my teammates. Okay. Well, they're going to be a practice for, I mean, heavy air quotes, 20 hours a week, you know, and that's only the mandatory stuff in season. What about their academic stuff? I mean, their, their treatment that doesn't count, you know, it's like, when do you see your roommate a lot, your teammate, who's your roommate? Oh, like at practice. Ah, okay. Now things are going to change. So um, I hear that. And it's a really valid question for everyone. And each, each experience is completely different. So um, it's great that these parents are thinking about it and there's no one perfect answer. Yeah, for sure. While we're on the topic of injured athletes um, and, and with you doing this commonly, are there just common things that come up as you start working with athletes that are going through injury or some type of return to play process, some common themes that you see a lot um, in, in helping those athletes? Oh yeah. I mean, anger, guilt, stress, sadness. I mean, in, in no particular order, but usually somewhere in that order, <laughs> um, you know, and, and there's that, that level of disbelief. I mean, even if you just think about like the five stages of grief and things like that, I mean, there is usually a level of disbelief and then anger about what's happening. Um, whether I intervene at that level or not, I think that that experience is real and it happens. And, um, I mean, I think all of those experiences are valid, but I think that one especially feels valid. Like, okay, did you ask for this? No. Did it happen at an ideal time? There's never an ideal time to get injured. Right. So makes sense. Right. Um, and so the super common themes, um, I would say the, the thing that fuels the fire the most is the unknown. Um, it could be six months. It could be nine months. It could be like, I don't even know if I can get in in three weeks and all of this unknown, which is um, a huge source of stress for so many. So, I mean, those are super common concerns. Um, and then outside of it, you can also add the, the family and cultural pressure of, Hey, I was sending money back to my family, or I was doing this to have a different life for myself and or my family or my friends or whoever my community is. Um, now can I not do that? And it's enmeshed in this identity that has been created, not always, but often. And I mean, any way you slice it, it gets complex and messy right away. And so when someone comes to your office and they, they say, Hey, I'm just not in a good space. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, you have major depressive disorder, like moderate reoccurring. Okay, great. Prozac, here you go. Like, no, it's, it, it could mean anything and it's super complex. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to get your take on, um, like from our perspective as a clinician, we, we don't, we want to encourage athletes and we want to build their confidence throughout the rehab process. But, you know, it's also, we don't want to be disingenuous. And the fact is that we don't know what that outcome is going to be. Like, we hope it's really good. We're going to do everything in our power to make it really good. Um, but sometimes we struggle with like wanting to make them feel really confident. Like your knee is going to be great. Like, it's just going to, we're going to attack this. You're going to come out. We hear it all the time. You're going to come out on the other side of this rehab, even a better athlete than you were before. Um, the flip side of that is like, it takes a lot of work and we don't want, we don't want to build complacency. We don't want to make you so confident that you're just like, oh yeah, my knee's great. I don't, you know, <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't need to do all this stuff. So, um, I think that that mindset for athletes going through that rehab process is hard to, hard to like, from my perspective, hard to balance sometimes with mm -hmm. that. Like, 
I want you to be confident, but not overconfident that you go do something stupid and re-injure yourself. Um, and I want you to still understand like the need that it's, you need to work really hard at this process. Do you have, um, kind of things around that, that you, uh, have, have used successfully in the past with injured athletes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the first thing that I like to, not the first thing, but the first thing that comes to mind in this moment is the, the idea that, you know, athletes who are successful or great athletes or however you want to label, which I, I try to stay away from that, but, um, to use the vernacular, like great athletes don't do extraordinary things every day, but usually they do the boring things consistently and usually consistently well. And, and that's injured or not injured, you know, it's getting there early, doing your prehab stuff, going through not the motions, but kind of right. Yeah. Making sure their bodies in a, in a space where it's ready to do the things it needs to do like kinetically and physiologically. And then they do things afterwards to, to let their promote rest and recovery and things like that. And the same can be said during the recovery process. And so um, the complacency thing is, is an interesting one because it does happen. Um, and, and that's a challenge I have. It's like, are we, are we doing the things we need to do because they're consistently boring and we're just doing them? Or are we just, just not, are we just not there today? Like, are we just not <laughs> ready for, for treatment and, and, and why, you know, and uh, it's okay if they're not feeling ready. I was meeting with an athlete today who's going through some, some stuff kind of toward the end of their spring season. And I said, is today a day that you feel like you're going to get after it? And they very openly was like, no, no, I really don't. Like it, the past eight days have been like the worst of the last four years. Like, okay, right. Okay. Maybe we're not in a space today. Then what can we do? What can we be really intentional about setting the intention of, you know, having maybe technique correct, even if um, overall load isn't there or something like that. So that's how I tackle that one. And with confidence, confidence is like a fickle beast because it's great. And I think important, it's not everything though. Um, what, What I often say with confidence is it, it comes from a few different sources. And I'd say one of the biggest ones is credible self-talk. We all talk about positive self-talk, which isn't bad, but I often ask people like, okay, can we agree that negative thinking hurts? And I think like everyone can, can get on board with that. Um, There's always the person that's like, well, I'm kind of of hard on myself. Does that count? It's like, we'll get there. No, I don't think so. Um, But we can think negative thinking hurts. Can we agree that positive thinking could help performance? I think most people say yes. But my question is like, can we access the positive self-talk? And I would say most times an honest athlete can acknowledge that, no, not always. I, I, I can't always do that, um, which is a trainable skill. And so we can train the positive piece. But what I really orient people to is, do you believe the voice in your head? Is it credible? And where does that come from? Well, past performance and doing the small things, getting the reps and things like that. And so, you know, to an athlete who's, who is wondering like, am I going to come out the other end stronger or better? I mean, maybe we level with them and say, I don't know, but I do know that doing these small things is going to, it's going to be the thing you look back on when you have to finally take that step, that leap. There's always that moment in everyone's transition when it, 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 it becomes clear that we've scaffolded it way, 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 way down. And it's no longer a leap, but it is a step. Um, and those are the things you can look back on and, and, have some faith and, and some hope. So um, 
just like you're, you're bringing some humility. And I, I hope I do too, because it's, it's not a guarantee, but we can train it. That's yes. for sure. No, I think that's great. And I, I, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think your kind of analogy there with the confidence um, makes a lot of sense because I just keep coming back to ACL injuries because something that we do a lot and there is such a large fear-based component. We know it can affect outcomes. Um, What's been interesting for us, we do a lot of objective testing um, and how often the like objective numbers line up with their self-confidence. Like when their quad Mm -hmm. strength's at 70%, they're like confidence in their knees somewhere around 70%. And, um, sometimes I hear PTs that are, that are just, and, and not to be like overly critical of my own field, but they're just like, well, you just, we just need to keep exposing them and, and telling them that it's going to be okay and getting them to, to be confident. And, and then they're going to do great. And I'm like, no, like that's just an excuse for like a bad rehab process. Like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm all about like trying to boost that, but we still have to address some of the underlying issues and, and, um, the mental side might be separate. We've had certain situations that were like, the athletes are great. I'm like, I don't have anything else on my hand that I can do. And you are so terrified to go back out to practice that literally your the, the mental state is holding us back at this point. Like your, your body is far exceeding what your mind's letting you do. Um, and that's where it's like, a uh, can be a, a rate limiter for how fast we progress. Mm-hmm. Well, the relationship with fear thing, I think is huge, you know, and the, the idea that if we just continue to tell people that it's not a problem, it's not going to be a problem. And, um, yeah, like I, I I'm not a fan of the fake it till you make it approach. I don't think it holds a lot of water. Uh, I will agree with someone at like a coffee chat that it, it, it can work. Um, but why I say it doesn't hold water is because it's not reliable and consistent, you know? And, um, I think most people, in their most cynical days can think like, well, there was this one time I had no idea. And I went in there, great body language. And I just made it happen. Um, it's like, okay, cool. Like, does that work every time? Well, no, that's why I'm here. Okay. Well, right. Okay. No problem. Like it worked once, but, but let, let's be intentional about how we're thinking about this. And of course, body language is a contributor to confidence, but that slice of the pie is a lot less, in, at least in my opinion, in the way that I've read it in the research. So, yeah, uh, yeah no, I mean, it, but I also get it. Like I empathize with the, the PT and the AT and the team doc and everyone else who feels like, like we've tried everything. Why isn't it clicking? And I empathize with that. And I think that's a, an under thought about part of the process. We always think about the athlete, which we should, because they're at the center of, of, of care. Um, but the, the provider is not exempt from their own thoughts and emotions and an investment in the process. They want it. They want it as well. And so, yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, we could probably just spend like an hour just talking about injuries, but, um, for the, for the athletes that we have a lot of people that actually aren't hurt that listen to this as well. So let's, <laughs> let's, uh, shift gears and, and yeah. I want to talk about, um, a little bit on the performance side, uh, especially. So what are some, uh, some common like mental skills that in your role as like a a mental performance consultant that you might work with on an athlete to help them enhance their performance. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And so I'll, I'll rattle off a few and we can riff on it. And as soon as we hang up, I'll think of like two more that I wish (laughs) I would have said probably. Um, We already touched on visualization. Uh, The the quick briefer on that uh, is that, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people miss is that, 
they're looking at it from a third third person perspective. Um, so we're used to watching film that way um, because it's the easiest way to get film and most affordable way. Um, we don't always have 360 cameras on our helmets. Um, I know one person who's done that uh, <laughs> and he got a big grant to do it in his research project. It wasn't live game. So um, so if we can shift into a first person perspective through our own eyes, that that is a huge difference maker. Uh, can we see it in real time, not sped up, not slowed down? I'd say that's a really big part of it. Um, and an optimal outcome, maybe not positive, but optimal. You know, are you seeing yourself move through space the way you'd like to move through space? Um, the, the the little difference there is, you know, a golfer who's uh, who walks up and sees they've got a, an unfortunate lie or an unfavorable lie on the ball. In Wisconsin, it would be a lot of crabgrass probably. In, in Arizona, we call it a desert ball because it's uh, like next to a saguaro and a rock and like, it's just, it's a bad situation. So, um, you know, can we optimally see ourselves getting back on the fairway or on, on the green or whatever? Um, even if that's not like, you know, an Eagle chip or something. So I'd say those, that's a super common one. Um, and one of my favorite things to work on because we can get really creative with like auditory and visual cues there's with the internet being around, we can literally find so much to make it as much of a sensory experience as, as it could be. Um, you, you, I think especially now you can't get away from performance without thinking about mindfulness and being present. Um, for a long, long time, it's gotten a bad rep of, you know, sitting cross-legged saying ohm and, and breathing really slowly. And there's no disrespect to people who have a meditative practice like that. In fact, that's like a spiritual thing. So I, I don't want to be insensitive when I say that, but but I call that out because I think that's most people's first stereotypic way of looking at it. Um, but mindfulness is nothing more than being in this moment intentionally and being non-judgmental about the experience. Um, it can mean your heart rate's at 185 and you're in the middle of a, you know, in the middle of a big set on the erg, if you're a rower, um, but you're present in that moment, you're not being judgmental and you're intentionally shifting your, your attention to where it needs to be. That's mindfulness and, and we can train that and it starts with awareness. And so that's, I would say a huge part of it. Um, and I'd say lastly, attentional control is a really big one, getting away from the idea that we lose our focus and it runs away and more into the headspace of attention shifts to either something that's helpful or it shifts to something that's not helpful, which would be a distractor. Um, and so, I mean, those three things could take of a bulk of like, those aren't three sessions that could, those could be 15 sessions, like five sessions each on those. Like, I mean, not limiting, but, but, but if we're building a foundation, it, it takes a lot of work so that I'd say that's a bulk of the work I do. Um, but again, we'll hang up and I'll, I'll think of something else. Think of some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a great introduction to it. I, I've learned a lot. The, the way that I've learned the most about this is by talking to like some of the professional athletes that we support. They um, have worked with mental mental uh, skills consultants and mental performance consultants, and uh, just like listening to some of the things that they've done has been really easy. Like um, one of the players worked with a guy that um, would he would like watch film of his outings, not for like how did he pitch, but like what was his body language, like what was his routine in between innings or throws or what was his body language like or how did he react to like a bad uh you know a bad pitch or he gave up a hit like what um would go through and it's just interesting to to 
listen to him after the sessions and what he was learning kind of going through that process and, and reflecting on, yes, he, with the pitching coach, he would work on why did that pitch go where it wasn't supposed to go or, you know, what, what happened on the actual physical performance side. But then he was also being really intentional about what was his, what could he control with his mind or in between that um, to learn from it going forward. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, and with, like everything being on huddle or TV or anything else. It's, it's so easy. I'd say my favorite example of that is I was on the sideline with someone and um, performance was not where they wanted it to be. Uh, and they were, they were not loving it. And, you know, we happened to catch each other at a commercial timeout and um, you know, like I kind of asked them, like, are you wearing this? Like, is this, is this who you are today? And, like, no, 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 it's really not a big deal. Like I'm over it kind of in some denial stuff and I get it, you know, it, it's a it's an intense moment and and we're in the middle of it and uh, things slowed down. And a week later um, we reflected on it and they're like, do you, do you think so? I'm like, sure. So we literally were able to pull it up and we could look at our conversation. We couldn't hear it, but we could see it. And we looked at our body language and I was standing there talking, you know, like whatever, this isn't about me, but I'm just as the, um, as the control in this study. Um, and then we look, we watched them and their body language and how it deteriorated and how it changed. And it's like, Oh, Oh shoot. Like, and it wasn't about me being right. Like, that's not what this topic is about, but so often we're unaware of how we're, how we're thinking and what we're doing how we're moving through space that it's like, yeah, let's watch some film. Like, let's see it. And, and it's not like lay down on the couch and let's talk about it for 60 minutes. It's like, we passed each other. We found it. And nine minutes later, I'm walking this way. They're walking this way. And that's the intervention. And I think that's honestly, that's one of those fun parts about the job, but to your point, an effective thing where it can be a micro adjustment that could lead to a nice change. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and this might just be an example of, some of the things that you already listed in terms of those skills, but like an athlete that, I mean, it's, it's unavoidable pressure changes performance. I think um, anybody that's ever gone to a PGA tour practice round mm -hmm. and watch those guys play golf and then gone to a competition round. I mean, you could stand and watch guys hit it in the middle of the fairway and 10 feet from the green in a practice round all day. And as soon as the actual competition starts, you will no longer see them all <laughs> land at the same <laughs> spots. Right. So how, how does pressure affect athletes? And like, could you give an example of it might be some of the visualization or things that you've already list, listed, but how can that actually help an athlete manage pressure within an in-game performance situation? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Well, I think the first thing to think about is when we talk about pressure or we talk about the effects of pressure, like what are, what are we actually talking about? And I think we're talking about cognitive and physiological changes. Um, and, and they, they differ for everyone. Some people are super cognitive on it. Uh, their heart rate stays fine. Their heart rate variability is fine. Their breathing seems fairly steady, but they're like very much overthinking, spiraling, whatever. Uh, or it could be inverse, you know, their mind is, is maybe fairly neutral and heart rate's super high. Their shoulders are up by their ears. They're tense, their stomach aches, you know, whatever. And so I, I think we first have to start there. And coming back to the topic of awareness, I like to think about like, are you aware of this, that this is happening? 
because if we can become aware of what the problem is, whether it's in sport, business, <laughs> whatever, life, we can we can move toward solving the problem, you know, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it really starts with awareness. And so in an ideal world, that's something we've been working on before competition, you know, and what do you notice about your mind and body when you're swinging freely in this golf example? What do you notice about your mind and body when you're on the bench versus when you're playing at a timeout before you're going in? When you're not starting versus when you are starting, what do you notice about your morning leading up? Did, did something change? Sometimes even asking that question, think, oh my gosh, yeah, I actually do. Like I skip breakfast or I overcompensate by doing this or that. It's like, okay, like no shame in the game, but like, let's realize what's happening. Um, and building off that, it doesn't have to build off that, but in an ideal world it would. But even if it doesn't, understanding that when competition starts, we don't need to flip the switch. We don't need to rise to some occasion that's maybe outside of our realm of, of, you know, physical or mental capability in that moment, but rather can we just stick to the, stick to the program and do what we've been doing again, easy for me to say, but that's why we train it. And we're talking about this literally yesterday with someone and in in their case on the track, there's, you know, um, prelims and then finals if you make it. And so, you know, it's a field event. So it's like, well, let's not see it as three. And then if you make it three more, but let's see it as six, you know, can we build from that so that we don't flip the switch when we hit finals, even if you're guaranteed to make finals, like what's the marginal improvement from three to four. And are you aware of what's going on in your body? Um, you know, and when we can answer those questions, good things tend to happen. Um, I'll, I'll flip the script. Um, we can also just really dig into pre-performance routines. That's something where when the awareness piece isn't there, it's like, are you grabbing your club at the same time at the same place? Are you visualizing the shape of the shot, the landing where it's going, you know, are you stepping up to the ball and addressing it, you know, cleanly, freely without worry after committing, you know, and saying whatever you're going to say to yourself or not having swing thoughts, depending on where you are, we're using a lot of golf examples, but you brought up a really good example, you know? And so Yes. And to all of this, like there's not one way, but I think we do need to find what works. Yeah. I'm sure it's, I mean, just like everything else got to be very um, individual dependent and, and probably somewhat sport dependent too, based on, oh, yeah. I mean, golf's going to be a very isolated, you have plenty of time versus a soccer player is going to be much more in the heat of the moment. And I'm mm -hmm. sure there's differences just within that as well. Oh my gosh. I mean, yeah, we could literally talk all day. Yeah. Because we, we haven't even really talked much about the aerobic sports, you know, if, yeah. um, or anaerobic, but you know, running, swimming, triathlon, wrestling, soccer, you know, things that, you know, events that don't have prolonged breaks. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, the context of the sport environment changes so much. So yeah, we could, we could talk Pod all day. Podcast <laughs> number two coming up, uh, <laughs> coming up That's in it. some future, some future time. Um, okay. So if an athlete's listening to this, um, obviously if they're at a school that has a college environment, there might be a sports psychologist that's on staff, that's available, available for them to, to talk to. Um, but if it's a high school athlete or, or, or the college kid, what's something that they might be able to recognize within themselves that they would benefit from taking advantage of, um, again, kind of bucketing into the 
clinical issues, which are different, but let's maybe just stay on the skill side of, um, I, you know, would benefit from talking to a, a sports mental skill consultant. What's something that I need to, uh, uh, could look for one of these professionals. Yeah. Well, and I think the first thing that I would tell someone, like if they're just listening and they're still hanging out here and they're like, do I, do I not? Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that there's, especially if we're talking about the performance side. So, um, just hanging out in that world for a little bit. I don't know that there's anything wrong with trying to go at it on your own for a minute and dig into some awareness stuff, dig into some attention stuff that dig into how you're talking to yourself, start there, journal some thoughts, become, become a, a bit of a scientist of your own mind. If you want, uh, be curious about your own process. I, I, I would encourage everyone to just start there. Um, two reasons, because one, you're going to find that you might already have these answers within you and then great, you've done it. Um, go on, you know, keep it up, be consistent, find, keep, keep digging. Uh, and, or you might become a little bit closer to the, the problem and you might not know how to solve it. In which case, when you do find someone, you can be a little bit more clear on what you're looking for. No harm. If, if you don't want to go through that process, like that's, that's like all the homework ahead of time that most people I think uh, actually do, but don't know they're doing, um, you know, but, you know, if they're to the point where they do want to talk to someone, uh, you know, get, get kind of clear on what you're looking for, because if it is a clinical concern, um, psychologytoday.com is the greatest database right now, at least in the U S uh, you can type in your insurance, your location, like all the way down to provider preferences on what you're looking for, uh, like demographically. And so that can be a great, great place to start. However, that's usually not where you're going to find sport and performance psychologists or mental performance consultants or mental skills coaches. Um, so in that case, if you're looking for someone, I would look through the ASP registry. So ASP is AASP, the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. Similar kind of thing. You're going to put in your location, um, you know, your range of how, how far you're willing to, to go and things like that. And you're going to find some, uh, but it's interesting because you'll find, I don't know, 3000 therapists in Wisconsin, maybe it's 30,000. I don't know how many it is. It's a lot. And you're probably going to find 15, uh, certified mental performance consultants in Wisconsin. I think it's about 15, um, you know, and so that might change things for you, how, how you get in contact with them. The important thing for probably the parents of these athletes to know, and maybe the athlete themselves, is that unlike the clinical side, there's no interstate jurisdictional issues with mental performance consultants. So um, I hang out and talk with a lot of people in Wisconsin still. And with the time change, it gets a little, little interesting. Um, some, some late nights for, for some of those folks or some really early mornings for me, um, you know, but there isn't an issue with that. So you might find someone, if you're in Wisconsin, you might find someone in the Chicago area that works really well for you or something like that. So kind of a long answer there, but, um, I think those are the most common ways to find, um, someone to work with. Yeah. I think that's great because it is a, it, it can be a daunting task to look for somebody. And, um, I think any field, but I feel like, especially when you're talking to a person, you have to find someone that you connect with and that, mm -hmm. that you can build a trusting relationship with that, that works for you. Otherwise, um, I, I would think even from your perspective, it would be a big struggle. You kind of referenced it earlier, even at 
at um, the school that you're at now. It's just maybe somebody's a better fit for somebody else on staff just because of personality wise or communication mm-hmm. styles, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the, the rapport that you build with the person you work with, I think is hugely important, you know, because if you don't see them as credible and you don't get along with them, um, are you actually going to believe them? Are you actually going to do the work? I, I would say probably no. And, and that's not me trying to be mean, but I think that's just the reality of our work. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, hugely important. Yeah, no, that's great. So you met, you referenced online sessions um, and that you still do that. What is, what does someone's process with you kind of online remotely look like? Obviously you have your day job, but if somebody was interested in working with you, um, how does that, how does that um, function? Yeah. Well, it starts with a conversation for sure. And, um, you know, people reach out via email or my website, or they just call me because someone gave them my phone number, which is fine. Um, and actually that going back to your, your last question, I think that's the other way people can find providers is, you know, ask, ask your PT, ask your AT, ask your team doc, like, who do you recommend? And they may know someone, but yeah, the, the process starts with a conversation. And, um, I like to just ask people what, what are they looking for and what's going on for them? And this is just a complimentary phone call or exchanging emails for as long as it takes. Um, Because again, I want to make sure it's a good fit for me, but I also really more importantly, want to make sure that they think that it's the right fit for them. And um, it's actually what they're looking for. And usually can answer, I would think a bulk of questions within that first phone call. Uh, Beyond that, we find a time that works and we set up a, a session on Zoom and go from there. The, the first session, typically a lot of information gathering, but um, unlike maybe some stereotypical things, it's not like, great, thank you for giving me all this information. Uh, I'll take your money and I'll see you in two weeks. It's like, no, you gave me this information and you're probably hungry to get going. So let's hit the ground running, you know, and, and already find some, some maybe some micro interventions. Um, from there, you, you do a little bit of the work, hopefully. Uh, you come back in a week or two weeks or a month or whatever feels right for you. Check in. How did that go? And what I tell people, whether they're at the UVA or outside, it's, you know, come back and say, Mike, that sucked. I don't like it. It didn't work for me. Okay, great. Why? Uh, hopefully it doesn't happen uh, as much. Uh, but, you know, okay, it did go well. But this one aspect, okay, great. Let's, you know, let's adjust it. Let's chat about it. Um, a lot of times it's behavioral stuff and some, some things to think about. Um, and beyond that kind of the sky's the limit. Like, it's not like, a, Hey, I'm going to work. Everything's going to be perfect in five sessions, but it's just a, let's unfold the process, be honest with each other about what we're looking for here and, and figure it out. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and I know you mentioned you had a website. Um, we will get that included in the show notes. Are there anything, any other places that people can learn more about you online or follow along with what, what you're doing or is the website the best spot? I, I mean, I think the website's a great place to start. You know, I, I think that um, you could probably type in my Clark sports psychologist and like my Twitter will pop up and website and other stuff. And um, I, I, I'm not naive enough to know that that's, I think, how people are doing their homework ahead of time. And so that's what I'd recommend. But my email or my uh, website is clarkperformanceconsulting.com. And my email, very difficult, mike at clarkperformanceconsulting.com. So very original. Um, yeah, I know, right? Well, keep it simple, right? Exactly. Exactly. 
All right, man. Well, I know I really appreciate you taking the time after a full day of work to chat with us. Um, these are some of my favorite conversations where I get to talk to another professional and I always learn a lot um, by by going through them and, and I really enjoyed it and I'm grateful for you taking the time. Oh man, likewise. I, I think these are really fun. I mean, we get to just talk about sports psych for an hour. This is great. Thanks again. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you for everyone that's uh, listened to this episode and we'll see you guys on the next episode.